Welcome to Reading Aloud Live. My name is Reverend Campbell, and today we are continuing our read-through, our reading of Might is Right. We're on part four of six, maybe. We'll find out after tonight, probably. Um, I've had a good time reading this, not because I've enjoyed reading it as much as I've enjoyed interacting with you guys while I read it. It actually makes it a lot more entertaining. I've I've started a lot of books that I didn't necessarily end up enjoying, but I still fight through them and I still get to the end. You know, sometimes you knew the butler did it by chapter four and you still have 20 to go. Or the anticipation and excitement that people told you about the book, like for me, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, didn't quite live up to the actual reading of it itself. And so you still just kind of get through it so that you can say that you read it and you are informed by what's between its covers. And uh, that's what, that's kind of where I am right here with this. <laughs> Not really enjoying it, but we're going to get through it. Uh, I want to give a quick shout out to Zachary. Thanks for joining us in chat, man. Good to see you. Valeria, how are you, my dear? What's up, behemoth? Uh, Rodrigo. Thanks for joining, man. And anyone else who joins throughout the course of this, I understand and, and I can tell because of analytics, there's, <laughs> there's a definite dwindling of interest in this book, in, in the series that, that I'm producing for this book. As each episode goes along, it started off with a lot of people and then it just slowly, slowly dwindles to no one. So for those of you who are uh, tuning in at this point, after you know what we talked about last time, good on you. <laughs> You're either rabid racists, starved for entertainment, or just really want to listen to someone else read it so you don't have to do it yourself. <laughs> one, one, of, one of those for sure, right? William, good to see you, man. Thanks for joining. All right, so we left off at chapter four, part six. So that's where we're going to be picking this up. And I'm going to give two hours to this thing. So I don't know if we're going to have a lot to talk about, but if something strikes your fancy as I'm reading it, please put it in the chat and we'll have a bit of a back and forth after each segment. So, you know, these each of these chapters is broken up by little sections. And so we'll get into it. Yeah, it'll be fun-ish. We're going to do it even if it's not, right? Because that's what we are. We're professionals. Oh, wait, here we go. Yeah. Six. From the scientific point of view, it is but a single step from the eating of Captain Cat... I'm going to start that over. Captain Cattle. Like Captain Crunch. But it's just like hooves or something, right? We're going to start that again. <clears throat> Rewind. Six. From the scientific point of view, it is but a single step from the eating of captive cattle, horses, sheep, hares, rabbits, deer, hogs, etc., to the eating of captive men. It may grate upon unstrung nerves to be harshly told these gruesome facts in straight language. However, calm, sensible readers must unreservedly admit that man is not a pretty, harmless little cherub, not even a lamb, but the fiercest, most ferocious, most cunning, and most bloodthirsty of all the vertebrates. He is the fighting, roving, pillaging, lusting, cannibalistic animal, par excellence, the king of the great carnivore. When he takes his walks abroad, the wild beasts of the field and the birds of the air, even the most courageous of them, are stricken dumb. Shuddering, they fly from his shadow. 
or his odor down the wind, hiding and trembling and quaking with terror. It is man's destructive energy, not his altruism, that makes him absolute monarch of all he surveys, and yet how feeble he is if compared to the powers of nature that gave him being. No other beast will stand and face him, except it cannot run away, not even a snake, a tiger, or a wolf. Structurally, men are fashioned for purposes of inflicting and suffering pain. Every human anatomy is an elaborate nerve and bone infernal machine. A kind of breathing, preambulating juggernaut. A superb engine of lethal immolation that automatically strokes its furnace fires with its victims. Men rush upon each other or upon their prey with hoarse war shouts and bloodshot eyes as prowling beasts of the deserts and jungles do. Man banquets upon his quarry with greediness, snarling and growling with ferocious, triumphant delight, just like unto the wolves. But he loves to act the hypocrite, turn up the whites of his protesting eyes to heaven, weep, irritate. Uh, crocodile tears over his mangled, bleeding, and palpitating carrion. How exultantly he lilts his te diem, his Kyrie Elysian, his et intera pax, his glorias, and his alleluias, while with blood-clotted jaw and distended paunch he licks his gaping wounds. As the painted redskin Chance's vengeful ghost song, so the furious pale face whoops his double-leaded editorial. As a hungry lion roars at midnight on Afrin, African Karoo, or in Himalayan jungle, so the puritical Anglo-Teuton roars his battle hymn of the Republic, his Britannia rules the waves, or his watch by the Rhine, exactly as the Muslim fanatic yells, Allah Akbar! While slicing up hated Christian dogs, so the vicious Englishman thunders forth his hip-hip-hurrah, while driving an elegant bayonet dagger into the liver of wicked heathens, whose property he thereafter annexes as a matter of course, for business is business, don't you know? Man's anatomy, external and internal, his eyes, his teeth, his muscles, his blood, his viscera, his brain, his vertebrae, all speak of fighting, passion, aggressiveness, violence, and prideful egoism. Even the component elements of a human body are themselves in a constant state of internecine warfare. Our bony framework and pulsating tissues are vast campaigning grounds, whereupon microscopical animalculae in countless myriads fight out their ephemeral lives as we ourselves do with tooth and claw. When one swarm of microbes, germs, or spores conquer in the struggle for sustenance, disease or death supervenes to us, as the case may be. When rival hosts vanquish, then our flesh, nerves, bones, and blood becomes their happy hunting grounds, and our health returns, at least until the Basili battalions have finally eaten us out, where they have been themselves conquered and exterminated by fiercer swarms. It is not improbable that this earth itself is a living, breathing organism, and that the tribes of man are microbes and blood-sucking vermin on its outer cuticle, imagining themselves the whole thing, just as 
itch-creating parasites burrow into your own hide, so in our turn we may be unpleasant parasites burrowing into the hide of some nobler and grander being. That was six. Man is the apex predator through wit and endurance. Prelephus had me cracking up though. <laughs> Pale face, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't have my glasses on. Um, yeah, what? And here's the deal: like, this is just bullshit. Tigers eat man; they don't run from man. Even men with weapons, given the right circumstances, a bear, a tiger, whatever it is, wolves. In packs, though, traditionally stay away from man if they're hungry or if you come in on their uh, their kill, they will fight back. This idea that man is the the apex predator on its face without adding in our intellect and our tools and everything else is a little bit fantastical. But then this entire premise is a little bit fantastical, I think. The idea that might is right in every case, the idea that physical might is right. And that's just not a reality. I mean, from the dawn of time, look, look at uh, uh, um, uh, Attila the Hun. The reason why he was able to dominate all of Asia was because of technology, the bow and arrow on horseback. That wasn't outright might, that was technological savvy, as I see it. Otherwise, it would just be men beating each other with their fists and claws and teeth, as he constantly says, by tooth and claw. Or fang and claw. Yeah, I don't know about that. Fang and claw. When was the last time you bit someone in a fight? Was it a life and death situation? Because maybe then. But, you know, weird. Seven. From youth to hoary age, man takes an instinctive delight in all that pertains to warfare and the chase. As a boy, he twangs his arrows at the sparrows, trains and loads his toy cannon, marshals his tin soldiers, brandishes his wooden sword, fights his mimic battles, builds his snow fortifications on the playground, and the proudest day of his life is that on which he becomes the proprietor of a real gun. As a full-grown citizen, he practices homicide with repeating rifle. At moving targets, slaughters tame pigeons with choke boar breech loaders, hunts foxes, wolves, bears, pumas over mountains and mere, wades up to his neck in swamps to kill teal, and travels to far lands in search of big game and nigger shooting. The Indian fighters of North America take supreme joyance in slaying red devils, and to pot a black fellow in Queensland is boasting of round campfires under gum trees as great fun. The Cape of Good Hope, Australia, New Zealand, North and South America, have been made into veritable human shambles and glory, I'm sorry, gory hunting grounds within the memory of middle-aged men. Indeed, the delight which men take in slaying wild animals is tameness itself compared with the exultation they display in hunting, trailing, and slaughtering each other. Manhunts were organized systematically in Lacadamia, where the helots became too numerous and too resistive. It is not improbable that as our own surplus submerged tenths increase in numbers, they may be thinned out by similar batitudes. At every meal we rend flesh, scrape bones, suck marrow, and daintily lap blood, just as our 
hairy troglodyte progenitors did. The food supply of all Christian nations is composed of the body and blood, the hides and marrow of both animal herds and vast swarms of inferior brutes. Living, dying dead. The lives of countless hordes of hirelings are daily being transmuted into juicy steaks and sirloins that those who have money may buy and eat thereof. Not only do we ferociously compete for prey, i.e. for sustenance, but we literally eat each other with veracity, relish, and mutual tolerance. Thus properly understood, Darwinism is not very comforting doctrine for fat men. Public buildings and frowning fortresses, capitals and prisons, temples of freedom and cross-crowned cathedrals have every one of them been constructed upon exactly that same general principles, whereby the pyramids of on and the palaces of Nineveh were built. Every riveted girder, every iron transom, every block of concrete, every solid, squared, and polished stone has been bedded literally in a dying groan by the hands of dehumanized and conquered decadence, insensate of reason, void of reverence, full. There's nothing immortal, nothing abnormal in these grim facts. All is in strict harmony with that cosmic enactment, the survival of the strongest. In the proud language of Germany's chastenist, the living current through the air is heaving, breathing blessings. See them bending, balanced worlds from change defending, while everywhere diffused is harmony unending. Instinctively, we understand that the struggle for existence is absolutely needful. We feel that nature makes no mistakes, and therefore we accept her dicta because we must, not because it's been eloquently formulated by sublimated visionaries or re-echoed again and again by thousands of human microphones. Um, I love that. Thus, Darwinism is not very comforting doctrine for fat men. Oh, that's really funny to me. Um, what's up, Robert? So, this is like one of those uncomfortable truths that we all know, and yet we all try to act like we've evolved past, even though it's actively happening right now. Slavery is a thing. Like, it's an active thing in the world right now. It has happened from the dawn of time. And I love how he's mentioning the idea that um, all of those brilliant blocks of stone placed in those beautiful structures were put there by dominating, dominated peoples, by enslaved peoples. Because in a lot of cases, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, anecdotally in history. Most of uh, slavery nowadays is through agricultural slavery. But um, sex slavery is like the sexiest version of it. And so that's what people usually talk about, though it's just a tiny little percentage. And so it, it always frustrates me nowadays when we run across our current cancel culture that wants to wipe out the memories of anyone who engaged in slavery. We can do two things at once here. We can say that our current culture does not look kindly on slavery and still reflect on people who had slaves for 
things that we consider good about them individually. Right? We can do both things. We don't have to condemn them because they were of the time. You know, if you were raised uh, in a, a, a slave cropping um, estate, slave cropping, <laughs> uh, a southern estate that had slaves, you were born into it. You didn't choose that. You were just born into it. And so you picked up what your parents and their parents did and you engaged in slavery in those times. That's that's how it went. Now, yeah, on reflection, it sucks and it's terrible and, and we should never do it. But it happened. And I can't accept the idea that simply because there were people who owned slaves everything about them must be bad, so we must cancel them from our current memory, or we should never talk about them in any good regard simply because they had bad traits or they were born into a situation that was normal for the time. That's absurd. And that's in part what I'm getting from some of this text that I just read, was the idea that, yeah, it, it, it happened. It's a normal thing that happened. It's not normal anymore, we can move past that. I'm taking that, you know, progressively right now, but it just drives me crazy, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Zachary, it, it totally does. Yeah, well, it's because you're a racist, Robert. That's why you're called a racist. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I guess, Ron. All right, let's go on. Eight. When not thwarted by artificial contrivances, whatever argument nature promulgates is right. The further man gets away from nature, the further he departs from right. To be right is to be natural, and to be natural is to be right. The sun shines, therefore it is right that it should shine. The rain falls, therefore it is right that it should fall. The tides ebb and flow, therefore it is right that they should ebb and flow. Darwin's law exists, may be seen in operation, is practicable, of daily demonstration, therefore it also is right. It's not a dream like religion. It's not an invention like morals. It is not an assumption like God. It is a cosmic fact, like the sunshine, the rain, and the tides. Nature does not set up idols, does not found superstitions, does not invent dialogues. These toys and fetters have been constructed by man for his own infinite damnation. Neither morals, laws, nor creeds are first principles, but they may probably have their uses, just as guillotines and gardener hose have their uses. They may be convenient engines for the deletion of lower organisms, for um, extirpating individuals of infantile intellect. Indeed, the secret object of all superstitions possibly is to provide an ultra-rational sanction for fraudulent standards of right and wrong. To base a lie upon a myth is certainly much safer than to base it on a reality, for you cannot run a tape measure over a myth. Christliness, as social quietism, has never yet been accepted by men of supereminent strength, courage, and wisdom. Such men have everywhere regarded the Christ ideal as a model for slavish souls only to be humored for strategic purposes, but never practiced by masters, conquerors, kings. Don't do as I do, but do as I say, 
has ever been the dicta of high priests and rulers to docile multitudes. The evolution of sovereignty satisfactorily exhibits this ethical dictatorship as an historical commonplace. Moral codes, always and everywhere imposed upon the common people by immoral combinations of cumulative craft, are never obeyed by ruling castes. Yeah, I, I dig that. I, like That is true. Absolutely. What I think... Here, my problem with, with anyone, in, in, in specifically with um, Desmond here, when he wrote this, was that he's treating nature as if, as if nature itself doesn't make mistakes, as if the natural order of the universe, as it were, was a normal, natural thing that, that implies some sort of benefit. And the truth is, is that nature is a the universe is chaotic. It, it doesn't care about order or chaos. It just is. If order happens out of chaos, that's an accident. It's not intentional. It's just, it happens because there are scientific laws that the universe is bound by. And so some order will happen. And in that order, conscious apes like us go, oh, well, then that must be the natural way of nature. No, no, no. Evolution itself is not ordered. It is chaotic mutations. And the ones that randomly happen to survive in whatever given region and whatever given epoch are the ones that live on. There's no structured design behind it, as it seems to me is being implied by this. And to, so to say that Darwinism um, is, is like this, this truth, this reality, I would say uh, it's only because we're on this rock in this moment right now. I don't know that outside of Earth, in other planets or solar systems or galaxies, or you know, I mean, there, there's you know multiple universes uh, is the common thought nowadays. In other universes, whether that theory holds any weight. I just hate the idea of ascribing this idea of intellect or um, uh, meaning to nature because it's just chaos. It's just randomness. Sometimes it works in your favor. Sometimes it doesn't. An asteroid could come down and crush me. Was that Darwinism? No. Was that natural order? No. Was that meant to be? No. It was just the chaos of the fucking universe. I mean, that's just, that's how it is. I hate people that, in, in one hand, they condemn the idea of God, which I, I get, I dig it. But on the other hand, they're like, no, no, nature has, has a, a natural order and it is always just and right and in its own way it is always ordered. No, nature just is. Order and chaos, it's all just randomness. It drives me crazy. Otherwise, what hurricanes? That's that. It's a natural thing to destroy uh, land masses, but was that ordained? No, it just it just happens. Crazy. Darwinism has been shown to be incomplete as it is the propagation of genetic codes that makes right, not so much an individual's adaptation. Yeah, I mean, just the genetic code that survives is random through evolution. So. It's just, it drives me crazy. Anyway, that's, 
I don't know how you can shit on the idea of someone who worships God and then worship nature in the same way. Nine. If the masters of Christendom are to be judged by moral codes, by the common law, or by gospel injunctions, there is not one moral individual among them. Measured by religio-ethical dogmas, they are one and all, an amalgamated mafia of blackmailers, confidence men, thieves, murderers, and infidels. As far as the codes are concerned, honesty must undoubtedly be searched for among the dregs of society rather than among the elite. But it is essentially unjust to measure the conquerors of mankind by fallacious Christianly standards. Christ, together with his moral measuring rod, is their subordinate agent and effective instrument of state. Indeed, moral principles are one of the tricks in the game of dog-eat-dog. All are playing. They are effectively narcotized out of the deal, who fancy themselves safe in the arms of Jesus. Never yet has there been a Christian king, a Christian president, a Christian congress, nor a Christian synod. Of course, many prominent celibates, uh, celebrates have professed Christendom. For example, Judas Iscariot, St. Peter, Torquemada, Cromwell, Abraham Lincoln, Napoleon Gladstone, and Jabez Spencer Balfour, but only mine's paralytic judge of men by professions. Christian and rulers are direct contradictions. The ridiculous ineffectuality of all gospel theories shows that they were only invented as campaign lies. Christ explicitly condemns the use of force, and yet all existing nations, without exception, were founded by unlimited throat-cutting and piracy. The rulers of the world, the directors of concentrated power, are not now and never have been sad-eyed saviors, mournful, immaculate trap gods, but masters of majestic violence. To use the language of Isaiah, not only Zion, but every nation on earth has been built with blood. Nations cannot be built otherwise. The Romans first appeared in history as a gang of banditti, the English as a nest of pirates, the Germans as a horde of roading freebooters, the Russians as a band of mounted horse thieves, the Americans as pious anarchists and nigger stealers, the Australians as exiled cut purses, the Turks as Bedouin brigands. Everywhere symbols of kingship, tribal totems, and insignias of state speak of violence, defiance, and war. The faces carried before a Roman praetor consisted of an axe for chopping necks and a bundle of rods for whipping backs. The mace of the English parliamentary organization, of which the American system is an imitative offshoot, that bauble of Cromwell, also, all royal scepters are but carved and gilded clubs. Originally, both mace and scepter were in daily use for breaking recalitrant skulls. They're still emblematic of legislative authority and offensive violence, as much so indeed as the knotted bludgeon, the barbed lance, or the greenstone skull. National crests are selected, not as a rule from doves, lambs, goats, magpies and hares, but from lions, tigers, she-wolves, serpents, dragons, bears, eagles, and the fighting man. In the centers of our highest civilization, 
force is recognized as the underlying principle of authority. Between nation and nation, it is in constant requisition as the basis of all diplomacy, and between contending factions within the nation, it is often effectively applied. The policeman's loaded truncheon, the hussar's slicing saber, and the artillery company's field piece are still the ultimo ratio of order, liberty, peace. The Maxim gun is a development and a decided improvement upon the old-time bludgeon, especially when dealing with rabid revolutionary ma masses. One of those beautiful engines and half a dozen trained men, if supplies with plenty of ammunition, could wipe out in half a day the largest mob of would-be insurgents that London, Paris, or Chicago ever saw. We have found in most cases that one regiment of regular infantry is quite capable of managing the biggest and wildest mob writes millionaire editor Colsot, Chicago Times-Herald, 13-11-96. When citizens disobey legal regulations, they are generally interviewed at first by a deep uh, blue-coated guardian of the peace, with an official warrant and a varnished club who tamely leads them away to a state dungeon or indicts them before a Senate inquisitor. Behind the armed police and the suave judge stands the threatening array, the whole military and naval forces of government and law. Law courts and thrones are de facto built upon bayonets. Likewise, all statues, constitutions, and moral codes are written by the sword. Material strength is now, and ever has been, and ever must be, the true basis upon which all political institutions rest. No other foundation is feasible. What the sword has established, the sword must defend. Symbolic, therefore, every emperor and president, every sultan, king, shah, or savage chief is proclaimed before drilled legions and raucous multitudes amid the fanfare of battle trumpets, the unsheathing of battle swords, and the thundering roar of battle cannon. Two examples from two continents, from two different systems of government, may be quoted as sufficient proof of this. Sir Edwin Arnold describes the recent coronation of the Emperor of Russia, an hereditary absolute monarch. Behind and between the royal chairs stood the new commander of the Silver Eagle Regiment, his saber bared and gleaming. When cannon volleys, booming across two continents, from Riga, the Vladivostok announced the final crowning of their Suzanne, two million Sclavonian warriors bared their heads in acknowledgment clinging their weapons in token of pride, and swore eternal allegiance. Governor John R. Tanner of Illinois, mounted on a black horse and wearing a broad-brimmed felt hat with gold braid and tassel, also cavalry saber, will ride down Pennsylvania Avenue, Washington, at the head of the 1st Regiment, National Guard, and the President's inaugural, crack Illinois soldiers marching, next the President's personal escort, Troop A, 8th Infantry. Along with the regiment will go the gun corps and the Gatlin guns they did service during the debts insurrection. The president of these United States, an elective monarch, is commander-in-chief of the federal armed forces and possesses more administrative authority than any Asiatic despot. Every military and naval officer in England receives his commission direct from the Queen, and until recently it was customary at coronation ceremonials for a hereditary champion, armed cap a pie, to ride out into the courtyard and there, before assembled commoners, knights, nobles, generals, officially challenged to personal encounter anyone 
who dared to even question the royal titles. European land title deeds may be in every instance traced back to military and kingly power. In all the English colonies, wastelands are occupied and cleared. Under crown grants, the same principle prevails in this republic and among all savage tribes. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Uh, side note, Darwin, uh, Christ is an effective agent of state. Haha, <laughs> that's great. Authority in the end certainly rests at the head of the promise of righteous violence. Yeah, um, great lines. And you can't argue it. That's, that's how nations were formed. And it's weird because reflecting back on that in history from a modern sensibility... Is, is there a fair amount of irony in the modern cancel culture using violence to shut down those who ruled through violence, intimidating them to hopefully get their way? I don't know. Seems kind of ironic to me. Kind of ridiculous. So even they who would then condemn this book are using tactics outlined herein in order to get their message across. Fair amount of irony in that. <laughs> I think it's great. Ten. By force, all things that exist are evolved, maintained, and perpetuated. Force aggregates and separates the atoms that go to make up this cosmic universe of mind and matter. It integrates them into forms, organic and inorganic. It disintegrates them again and again. It builds up and pulls down without the slightest respect to man's wishes or desires. It theorizes, creates, constructs, annihilates, attacks, and repels. It is literally in all, through all, and over all. Even the undulatory migration of races that now proceeds over sea and continent in great animalistic waves as it did in the days of Akbar and Tamerlane is also the vibrations of force acting through human media. It is the incarnate pulsations of power. Antiquarian delvings in America, Europe, Africa, Asia, and the islands of the sea corroborate the written annals, folklore, and legends of tribes and nations. The past of this pendant ball is one long, awe-inspiring chronicle of cannibalisms, invasions, ravishments, cataclysms, battle, murder, and sudden death. The surface of the soil is a lethal chamber, the bottom of the sea, a charnel house. Both are little littered from pole to pole with the ruins of forgotten civilizations that men and nature have delighted to destroy. Everywhere and always the debilitating have perished. Everywhere and always the mightiest have won. As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be. Power, slavery, pain, joyance side by side. Races of helots are never wanting. See to it, O oh men, that you breed fighters. See to it that you train them too. The harper is not made otherwise than by harping, nor the warrior otherwise than by war. Let muscle. Force be pitted against muscle force, brain power against brain power, and let winners wear the laurel, 
and lures, uh, losers wear the rasping sackcloth. Let there be no compromise, no half-hearted philandering, no back, backing down, but as Darwin commands, let the strongest live and the vilest die. He who does not provide for his own household is worse than a dog. Black, furious, and tragic are the bloody annals of man's evolution, and there is no rational evidence upon which to conclude that it shall ever be otherwise, or that it would be wise for us to attempt the making of it otherwise. Why then be discontented with that which we cannot alter, even if we dared? Better, after all, fifty years of Europe than a cycle of Cathay. Let it be as it has ever been, as the grim old Norseland skald chanted it when our race began to emerge in the dim, distant twilight of the gods when men were men. An age of axes, an age of swords, an age of tempests, an age of wolves. Be it among an MLK, moth or mollusk, birds of the air, beasts of the field, fishes of the sea, planets, suns, stars, or solar systems, force reigns unchangeable, unchallengeable, inexorable, supreme. When the kindly Roman emperor imagined that peace had settled down permanently upon the ancient world, even then the dissimulating assassin's daggers were sharpening for his throat. And now, while the lower organisms dream of a world of lovers, arbitration instead of hostility, of conciliation between rival carnivores, the mechanism of deletion is silent under construction, that, when completed, will sweep them off the face of the earth. The strongest organisms are always the determinants. They hold in their hands absolutely the destinies of weaker organisms. Further, in all the interwoven differentiations of matter and mind, equality, mercy, pity, and wholly at a discount, except alone in family relationship. A man's family is his property. It is part of himself. Therefore, his natural business is to defend it, as he would his own life. Women and children belong to man, who must hunt for them as well as for himself. He is their lord and master, in theory and in fact. Women are subsidiary organisms. Under natural conditions, there is no haven for the wretched, no hope for the weaklings, no resting place for the weary, no quarter for the beaten. Nature loathes infirm ones. Every organism, every human being must conquer or serve. This is an ultimatum. Life is a race for power into the very jaws of death, and hell take the hindmost. Hell. Take the hindmost. No, that isn't so. Christ takes the hindmost. Exactly, that is correct. In real life, he is the true prince of evil. Soothingly, he saith, Come unto me, all that are weary or heavy leaden, and those who obey and sure of hell. Nay, they are already in it. The smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. In ancient ages, the incapables were permitted to perish without comment, but with us it is different. Almsgiving, first by the monastery, now by the state, has preserved them and their leprous seed until modern nations are actually swarming with men and women, rich and poor, who are totally useless and totally vile. Selective influence that operate under natural conditions have been kept in abeyance by religions and moralisms. 
until the whole human race is saturated with inherited mental disease and rottenness of the bones. Our Christian civilization is a forced chamber for weakling animal K. Animal culae. Natural conditions are a lethal chamber for them. The proper home for incurables is the grave. Competition must be to the death. If retarded in any way it fails to beneficial results, the chief intent of false religions and false moralisms is to arrest competition halfway, to safeguard degenerates in possessing that which they could neither seize nor defend if competition was unlimited. Humanitarian institutionalisms have been invented to handicap and eliminate the elite of mankind, vainly, however. With the normal man, it is a pleasure to struggle, a pastime to fight, and nothing is sweeter to him than to confiscate his confiscator and surpass his surpasser, to, as it were, smite his eminent enemy hip and thigh and spoil him of which he spoiled from others. The normal man prefers to eat others than to be eaten. With the abnormal man, it is otherwise. He is of the mob. He is sheepishly obeys public opinion. He is one of a flock. That word, flock, does it not postulate the existence of shepherds to round up and drove, of specialists to castrate, of shearers to shear, of cattle dealers to purchase, of butchers to kill, of tanneries, wire fences, corrals, abattoirs, and finally of roast lamb and mint sauce, with fat carnivores sitting round, lapping blood and purring gently? There was a lot of that. Wow. It is strange to find, and I guess it's normal, um, to find uh, ideas that resonate with you, you know, in something like this that is clearly flawed, not just in the what's on the page, but it, it's flawed in the way it's written, the way it's communicated, because it is like a rant. But, um... You know, every once in a while, you can't deny that, that some of the things he's putting down here hold up. It's interesting. Eleven. Herbert Spencer, referring to the origin of manners, customs, and political institutions, says, The will of the victorious chief of the strongest was the rule of all conduct. When he passes judgment on a private quarrels, his decisions were the origin of law. The mingled respect and terror inspired by his person and his peerless qualities, then deemed supernatural by the rude minds that had scarcely an idea of the powers and limits of human nature, were the origins of religions, and his opinions were the first dogmas. The signs of obedience by which the vanquished, whom he spared, repaid his mercy, were the first examples of those marks of respect that are now called good manners and forms of courtesy. How human history duplicates itself over and over again. How it revolves in a never-ending panorama. Wherever human herds congregate, the victorious chief still governs, though not without envy and impotent opposition. Everywhere is master in one guise or another, but it behooves him to beware that his power is not undermined by the teredo of satisfied utopianism, a sanctified utopianism, founded on the multitudinous votes of the vile, the vulgar, and the vitiated. Blighting, indeed, is the tyranny of collective humanity. 
The greatest political uh, superstition of the present, also writes Spencer, is the divine right of parliaments and implied divine right of majorities. The supremacy of living manhood over devout dreaming, over literature, dogma, law, and tradition must be boldly asserted and aggressively maintained, as it were, in the days of yore. Woe unto you strong ones if you ever get beneath the hooves of the trampling, bellowing, maddening mob. Ha! <laughs> you must meet the guile and death snare with battle and with rack. Woe to the vanquished, was Stern Breno's word when sunk uh, proud Rome beneath the Gallic sword. Woe to the vanquished when his massive blade bore down the scales against his ransom wade. And on the field of fountain battle still. Woe knows no limits, save the victor's will. The survival of the fittest is the scientist's translation of the heroic ages via victus. Grim and harsh it may appear to nervous souls, but it is true to nature. Neither legislative enactments nor pious incantations can deflect or nullify it. It may be thwarted and turned aside for a time, but only for a time just as a river may be banked back by the building of a breastwork. The water cease to flow onward until the dam is brimful, and then, over the top, the flood leaps with resounding crash and uproar, finally sweeping away the obstruction itself. Decalogues and be it enacteds are mud ramparts the decadent ages vainly erect against the irresistible flow of natural events. Sooner or later, these feeble barriers go down or are surmounted, just as the river surmounts the dam. Cardinal Newman tersely describes the Church of England as a serviceable breakwater, and he speaks with astuteness. All sacerdotalisms are serviceable breakwaters. They may last for one century or twenty, but they down-tumble in the end. Artificial obstructions cannot last, for if they did, then the cankerous ancient civilizations would never have been overwhelmed, for they also had their serviceable breakwaters. That is to say, gods and temples, mob politics, mob morals, mob philosophies. Legal and ethical barricades may not be depended upon to protect dwindlings from the judgments they bring upon themselves and which they richly deserve. Every people that have been blotted out were rightfully blotted out. What a frightful maggot heap this earth would now be if the civilized populations of the past had not perished. If nature had permitted them to live and multiply and propagate their progress, that is to say, their iniquity, what a noisome sink it would be. What must near futurity be like if wars and plagues did not come, burning up contemporary infernalisms and purifying the air? Thus, the utter extermination of enfeebled breeds is in accordance with the highest wisdom. And whether we personally approve thereof or not, it must persist. There is nothing unjust. Nothing ultra-natural, nothing diabolic about the elimination of the vile to make room for the sound in mind and limb. Clearly, therefore, in every department of life, the lesser force must be overthrown by the greater, which, being interpreted, meaneth, might is right, absolutely, unreservedly. From the records of history, the facts of life, and the discoveries of science, this startling deduction may be thoroughly proved, the law of life as Benjamin Kidd writes, has been always the same from the beginning, ceaseless and inevitable struggle, ceaseless and inevitable selection and rejection. 
that might is master should require demonstrating is in itself a proof of the mental and moral perversity that pervades the world. Perhaps, however, the age we live in may not be an age of enlightenment and progress, but an age of darkness, arrested development, and psychic paralysis. Mayhap the theologies and intellectualisms of our time may be but a magical hoodwink. We might, for example, be enchanted on the downgrade track that leads to eternal extinction while insanely imagining progress and enlightenment. Also, the imagining process may be part of the complicated mechanism that facilitates the descent, the descent into Sheol. Official statistics show that racial deterioration, begun centuries ago as a sequence of ultra-naturalism, is now proceeding at a tremendous rate. Dr. Haycraft, FRSE, in his book Darwinism and Race Progress, asserts there are strong grounds for believing that during the last 30 years the race has decidedly degenerated. The decadence of character is obvious in the most obtuse understanding, especially in this land of liberty and light, where you can buy statesmen with a snuff box, editors with a dollar, and women with a guga. Undoubtedly, degenerative forces prevail in our social life, and yet it is impressed upon us from our youth up that a great light hath come down upon the earth, and all the ends of the world hath seen the salvation of our God. Salvation indeed! What lunacy! So the multitude goes like the flower and the weed that wither away to let others succeed. So the multitude comes, even that we behold, to repeat every tale that has often been told. To act as the hunted ostrich on an African Karoo, to hide our heads from cosmic vengeance in hot pursuit, is as futile and ridiculous as it is base. No empiric reorganization of the social system, no rock of ages, no legislative meliorism, no fungus virtues, no scheme of full redemption, no patent economic plan, no Israelitist codes of thou shalt and thou shalt nots can deliver whimpering defectives from the wrath that is their just reward. Sooner or later, their day of judgment cometh, bringing in its train desolation, reparation, and rolling doom. Even as I write, with wrecked civilizations lying around me, cold and chill, outraged nature is preparing her world blasts of wholesale avengement. Europe is a vast powder magazine with a strident maniac in the middle waving a burning torch, and from Asia is wafted the odor stench of plague-smitten millions. Any day, any hour, Civilization may be startled from its hypnotic trance to gaze upon the mightiest drama that has ever been unrolled, when the tempest flings out its red banner of lightning and great nations groan and reel and surge and rock beneath the thunderous tread of trampling legions drilling for the savage shock. Military arsenals are preparing in every city, and floating defiantly on seven seas are the steel-clad fortresses of rival mights. Foolish and blind, or mad, are they who think the struggle for existence ended. It is only begun. This planet is in its infancy, not in its decrepitude. The end of all things is afar off. The kingdom of heaven is not at hand. Incessant is the rivalry for supremacy among men, and manifold are its metamorphoses. 
Not for a single hour or a single second is there an armistice. Night and day the combat rages, and with renewed virulence on Sundays. When we fall asleep and when we wake up, the clashing of the weapons and the crunching of the bones is sounding on our ears. Everywhere the sword is uplifted on man. Everywhere Cain's bludgeon is cracking skulls, and with bloodhounds Americans hunt each other. The hand of congregations of the faithful are red with the blood of the innocent. Yet how they boast of being washed clean in the blood of their brother, the Lamb. Eternal battle is the main condition upon which man holds his life tenure. When the brand is shattered in his hand, that is death or slavery. When his enemies are beneath his heel, that is life, honor, success. Indeed, the struggle between men is more pitiless and more unmerciful than among brutes. The brute beasts do not enslave, but permit the unfit to die off. Man enslaves his brother man on business principles and makes fuel of the widow and the fatherless. The failures in life may be counted by millions, and everyone knows their horrible fate, their living death. Behold them being whirled into the blazing maw of the great iron furnaces. Overt action is not always needful for the drastic removal of lower organisms. Very often, if left alone, degenerates cremate themselves. If given control of governmental mechanisms, they immediately commence to grind one another into mincemeat, that is to say, into dividends, crying, Holy, holy, holy! Mentally, physically, morally, they are past redemption, doomed souls as they, miserable sinners! 75% of the inmates of state orphan asylums, for example, are the children of parents that perish from chronic alcoholism, poverty, helotism, or results of chronic ballot boxing. Alcoholism and politics are convenient destructives, crematories, whereby weak-minded flocks may eliminate themselves with beneficent results. Nature, having already condemned them, they provide each other with palpitable poisons for slow but sure suicide. They build Gehenna fires and cast themselves headlong into blazes. Sociology is a biological problem, and the nations are herds of cattle. How much demagogue he, hawing, would die down into solemn self-questioning if this grim, omnific fact was clearly realized. Be as a lion in the path. Hate for hate and Ruth for Ruth, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, scorn for scorn and smile for smile, love for love and guile for guile, war for war and woe for woe, blood for blood and blow for blow. Thou hast listened full oft to the diabolic philosophy of the divine creepling, Love your enemies, and bless them that hate you, and despitefully use you. But I say unto you, love thy kindred, love thy friends, love thyself, and hate thine enemies with a whole heart. Be a foe to your foe, friend. Be a foe to your friend's foe, a friend to your friend's friend, and above all things, permit no wrong done unto thee or thine to pass unchallenged, unredressed, unavenged. Let thy motto be, treat not on 
or tread not on me, for he that tamely submits to insult and injury is worse than a dog. He is a dastard, a born slave, a Christling. I'm the friend of all brave men, the foe of all cowards. I call up high daring, I cast down despair. An evil spirit hath inoculated our race with the hideous gospel of submissiveness, of degeneracy. Resist not evil, it whines, and if a man smite thee on one cheek, turn to him the other also. But I say unto you, if a man smite you on one cheek, smash him on the other. Resist every evil, be as a lion in the path, be dangerous even in defeat. Courage, I say, courage, and evermore courage. Lo, even the stars in their courses are fighting for the bowl. I recognize some of that. I bet some of you do too. I wanted to, I, I was thinking of this while I was reading it. I wanted to address that idea that uh, women and men belong, women and children belong to men and it is men's responsibility to hunt for them and feed them and himself. That's never been true across all cultures, ever. Not even in the animal kingdom. And some, but not all. It's weird because growing up as a man, I was always told it is your duty to protect and feed your family. Even in a culture that was saying that women have as much of a voice as men do, it is still the man's responsibility, right? We still have the burden, even if our culture does not say that we should. So as a man... We're getting mixed messages at all times. Women want to be treated as equals until you treat them as equals. And then in some cases, they get very upset or they feel ignored or demeaned. Not in all cases. There are always exceptions to every rule. But in my personal experience, in relationships between men and women, you want to be equal. Right? Like, that is what we're always told. All decisions must be made together. And sometimes they are. Not everywhere. Not in all regions. Even in America. Not in all regions. And so, it's, it's strange to reflect back on a time like that, saying that women and children belong to men, when women were sold to men's families. <laughs> and to, to reflect on that and think that it's not so, when that actually fucking happened. Like, that's, that's, that's how it was. You would sell off your daughters to hopefully wealthier families, and they would buy them uh, or, or receive them in promise of uh, real estate, land, like, it was a transaction. It happened. They would have many wives because they would often die in childbirth, but they would have more and more wives after that because they needed children to work the farm. Like, that was a thing. And it's ruthless and it's brutal, but if it didn't happen then, then I don't know that we would all be here now. So we have to really understand is maybe there was a better way of doing it historically. But historically, that's not how it was done. It wasn't done the way that we want it to have been done. It was done the way it was. 
Women were property. They did not have rights. Children were property. They did not have rights. Nowadays, we are more evolved. We are more rational. And we try, in most cases, to be in a relationship of equality with each other. But even in that, there's not real equality. So it, it, I just, I always find it interesting because we pretend, we put on this socially acceptable face of, yes, we are both equals in a relationship and we love each other equally and we make decisions together. But the truth is, not really. <laughs> Sometimes the woman is the bread maker. Sometimes she's the one that brings home the food and the man cooks it up. Sometimes they make all the choices and you just go along with it. And sometimes that's reversed. There is no such thing as equality. And certainly when we try to tell that narrative to our children, we are doing them a mad disservice because when they do finally get into a relationship and try to enact this mythological idea of equality, they quickly realize that they cannot sustain that relationship because it is not equal. There is no such thing. It's absurd. We keep telling the same lie over and over again. I just don't get it. Uh, relinquished to medi medi mediocrity by another and one's own lack of power. Yeah. There's some interesting lines in this. I, I dig. The new kind of slavery has been created by a modern man to be squashed beneath another's heel has become forgotten and used to another means. Yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely... I definitely uh, think that uh, in all relationships, there's a give and take. That's how they work. There's concessions, compromises. But throughout the relationship, throughout the decisions, sometimes one has more power than the other. Um, so no longer does women belong to men, nor do I think they should, in, in as much as men belong to women. But to pretend that one doesn't have more power in any given situation is just lying to yourself. It's always bugged me. I don't know why. All right. Um, so I wanted. I was. I was thinking of that while I was reading it, and so I, I had to get that out. It is weird that we we continually say that no, no, everyone's equal. We treat everyone equally, when we don't. We clearly don't. We never have. <laughs> like, why are we lying to each other? Why are we lying to everyone? Ourselves. Why are we lying to ourselves? I don't get it. Yeah, there was some good stuff in that chapter, Zachary. There really was. There's some bullshit in it too. But anyway, we're on the next chapter. So let's get into it. An hour in. If Redbird was around today, uh, he'd be able to model this strong survive philosophy in action by monitoring what goes on around the crab legs trays at the local Chinese buffet for a while. <laughs> what? Uh, chapter five, the chief end of manhood. You must tread down on the necks of your enemies if you would win renown. It is success that makes the great man, was Napoleon's dicta. The whole duty of man in this world is to succeed, to help himself, defeat his foes, outstrip his rivals. He who conquers, not, is conquered. 
He who is unable to trample roughshod over others will assuredly be trampled over by them. In the strength of his arm, man eats his bread. In the sweat of his brow and brain, the slave earns bread for a master. All emotional rhetoric about love one another, learn to labor and to wait, etc., has a tendency to paralyze effort, to make victims rather than victors of a sentence. Every man's hand is against every other man, except where living individuals have formed temporary co-partnerships. When one partner breaks the mutual agreement, then the combine is necessarily dissolved and all become enemies, as before. Fraternity between carnivores is a transient as the smoke of the morning. It is a protum expedient. Two hungry lions may engage to hunt together, but should one attempt to seize more than his fair proportion of the prey, then it is woe to the vanquished. Self-preservation first, foremost, above all things, and at whatever cost, is the law of the jungle. So must it be among human carnivores. So it is, for society is a jungle. Therefore, O oh reader, go forth and win. Possess all you can of earth's good things. Man does live by bread alone. Be strong and fear not, for all obstruction melts away before real strength of deed and strength of character. Nothing succeeds like success. Do not quibble over the order of your succeeding, but succeed. Thou shalt give thy heart to know God, for that is idiocy. Neither shalt thou love thy neighbor as thyself, for that is madness. Let nil desperatum be your motto, even to the death. If you fail, you are righteously detestable, but if you triumph, thrice blessed art thou. The great vice of our age is cowardice. Glory and honor be unto him that wins, but anathema, maranatha, be upon the head of him that fails. Failure is not only disgrace, but practical proof of organic incompetence ineptitude. Power and proprietorship cover a multitude of sins of alleged sins. But men and women, especially women, have an overthrowing fund of sympathy and forgiveness for the bold bad man if he is victorious. How women admire men of leonine resolution and eagle principles. How they detest cowardice, goodness, feebleness, effeminacy, failure. There is no character in history so universally applauded as the bold bad rebel and the mighty conqueror. Therefore, Get your gold and land and power somehow. If foiled and baffled one way, try another. Where there's a will, there's a thousand ways. If the worn and beaten tracks are intentionally blockading against you, do not hesitate to cut out a new highway through the jungle for yourself. Never mind the pulpiteers and editors. They are hired to blind and blockade you. Above all things, do not follow the multitude, for it tramples downward, ever downward, along Via del Mortis to abysses of poverty, chains, and shame. Retreat not, turn not aside to the right hand, nor to the left, but zigzag on. Ask no quarter, no sympathy. Die the death, rather than surrender and perish, striking at your conqueror. Withhold not good from him to whom it is due but when it is in the power of thine hand to do it. But withal, be honorable and upright, never forgetting that bravery, which includeth all other virtues, is the highest wisdom, and material success the chief 
end of man. Upward thou must rise or falter, bend the neck or stand triumphant, be the anvil or the hammer. Battle and conquer here and now, for behold, tomorrow you die. You die, and that is the end of you. Let Napoleon's ideal be thine. Napoleon was Darwin on horseback when addressing the ravaged, um, when addressing the ragged and famished army of Italy. These were his words. Soldiers, abundance courts you in the fertile plains below, the plains of Italy. Are you deficient in constancy and courage? Events prove that they were not deficient in constancy and courage. Consequently, the spoils of Italy and the stored-up treasures of the great Venetian bank were equalized up among them. Everywhere similar conditions have prevailed absolutely and always will prevail. There is land for the taking, and gold for the raking, and fame, and power, and song, for the brave, the bold, and the strong, and for none other. Therefore, be thou a Napoleon, don't be a Christ. Get your property by whatever method comes easiest to you, reverting to terms economic, buy power in the cheapest market, and sell it in the dearest. Gratify your life hopes as the lion and eagles do, i.e., along the lines of least resistance, even as do growing plants in a dark cellar. Do they not endeavor to reach sunshine by the most direct route? Scorn all insolent dictation as, you, as to right and wrong. Decide right and wrong for yourself. Get property honestly if you can, but remember, business is business. Mr. Cecil Rhodes, under heavy fire for fifteen minutes, captured one herd of cattle himself. Life is life, and defeat is hell. Obey thine inner voice. It can never err. It is thy very soul. Be a Darwin in active operation. Do noble deeds. Don't dream about them all thy life long. Moral principles, you say. What are moralisms that they should paralyze your arm and brain? Are they not artificial human enactments? Apparently sanctified, but not necessarily natural, honest, just, or true. Moral codes are the black terror of all dastards. The ethical principles of Christendom, judging by daily developments, are the principles of a mocking, sneaking, hypocritic devil, if there is a devil. I gotta be honest with you, I feel a lot better about this than I did last time. I really do. I mean, there's some bullshit in here, but it's still, it's fun. I don't know. And there is some wisdom in here. Not all of it. <laughs> but there's some. Absolutely, Zachary. Yeah. Never mind the pulpiters and editors. They're hired to blind and blockade you. Yeah, I mean, it's very satanic. A lot of this is very satanic. Taking power for yourself by whatever means. You are the most important and you must obey your nature. I mean, that's, that's straight up Satanism. That's great. I dig it. Sorry, I'm just taking a breather here. I reached out once and asked you guys, honestly, I'm like, I feel like I look like a banker with this vest and like a striped shirt. And then I got a comment on the channel. It's like, 
it's hard to take you seriously. You look like a sheriff, like an old timey sheriff. I was like, I, I can't disagree with that. <laughs> I kind of do. I got the star. I got the fucking vest. I've got the uh, fucking, oy vey. I made myself into a caricature. Thanks, William. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. Two. Readers must distinctly understand that sexual morality is nowise condemned in these pages. In all sexual relations, as in everything else, morality is what strength decrees. Women are frail beings at the best of times, and in their secret hearts are probably lovers of the unlimited. For the welfare of the breed and the security of decent uh, descent, they must be held in thorough subjugation. Man has captured them, and besides providing for and protecting them, it is necessary to keep them on the chain, as it were. Woe unto him, woe unto them, and woe unto our race, if ever these lovable creatures should break loose from mastership and become the rulers or equals of man. But that is impossible. From the earliest ages, man has captured his wife by force or stratagem, and to this day he does the same. Marriage ceremonies symbolize his proprietorship, his capture. The marriage ring is one link of a chain, emblematic of the fact that the prehistoric bridegroom chained his beloved one in a cave till she became tame, tractable, reciprocative. The sexual degeneracy that is now so prevalent among us is the result of Christian civilization, that is to say, the demonization of man and the equalization of women. As long as the husband is absolute imperator within his own four walls, the poisoning of the marriage bed, now so common and so loathsome, cannot take place. If his wife or an intruder dares to dishonor him, they die, and their death is an effective deterrent. His daughters, controlled with equal vigor, are not permitted to mate with every strumous dick, Tom and Harry, that comes smirking around, but are given away to young men who are born of good stock, or who would have proved their inherent manhood and capacity in carnivorous combat. Carnivorous combat. In his sexual relations, the insolent interference of church and state is gradually reducing man to a mere cipher and establishing a system of organized concubinage, or rather promiscuity. The records of our divorce courts show that sexual infidelity is spreading like wildfire. A prominent New Yorker has publicly asserted that two-thirds of the married women in that city are systematically unfaithful, and a fat, sordid priestling named Moody even openly advises his female lambs to enter into the joys of godly freedom via of that harlot factory, the divorce court. A woman is two-thirds womb. The other third is a network of nerds and sentimentality. To emancipate her is to hand her over to the tender mercies of clerics who have learned to play upon her emotionalism. Then, credos become illegitimately powerful and dare even to dictate the whole duty of man. After, and the copy here is like all messed up in blank, inspire politics and rule nations. Then the state becomes the individual's dictator. Men are demonetized while degeneracy and socialistic hybridism sets in like a slimy flood. 
Prostitution, for hire, is also the direct outcome of unnatural conditions brought about and established by the harmonious infernalism of statesmen and prelates. In many countries, this vile thing is regulated by law, and in all great cities it is a sure source of revenue, not only to the police forces, but to every man who invests in real estate or banking script. A great city is a great ulcer, and a great ulcer is a sure symptom of congenital blood poisoning. Undoubtedly, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was a good thing. If our modern Sodoms were all razed to the ground, how nature in all her perennial purity would rejoice exultantly? How she would wrap their tombs in crumbling tumuli with a blaze of shining glory. If development persists along present lines, the time is not remote when it shall be truthfully recorded. There is no marriage in America. A terrible menace to manhood lurks in the dictation of slave majorities in this as in all other affairs. Under the plausible form of divorce proceedings, a devilish engineering has been established by means of which the once pure and freedom, uh, free-born Anglo-Saxon invaders of North America are rapidly transforming themselves into hordes of semi-socialistic, irresponsible free lovers. The sanctity of the home is disappearing. No longer can it be asserted that a man's house is his castle. Marriages are becoming proportionately less and less, and baby farming by the government is in full blast. Home life is withering away under the blight of state interference and pastoral benediction. Look over at France, where, with the growth of government supervision, the absolutism of the husband is attenuated to a mere fiction. And what do you see? A nation steeped in communistic eroticism as an astygian sewer. French women are notoriously unfaithful, and the most horrible sexual lusts are practiced and pleasantly laughed at. There, promiscuity it results is bareness, and this, when supplemented by correlated self-sterilization, is rapidly transmuting the once all-powerful Frankish confederacy into a feeble and decaying tribe of wasted, marasma-struck manlings sheltering themselves beneath the all-protecting wing of an Asiatic despot. The title of a man in the proprietorship of his wife does not originate with church or state or majority votes. It is inherent in the man himself. It began in capture and is continued by capture, modified, of course, by mutual affection, mutual tolerance, and parental love. It existed before the state monstrosity was invented, and it must be maintained intact, even if both church and state, those twin devils, have to be utterly annihilated. The Christian church commenced operations among Roman slaves and Syrian harlots. Its founder himself was the fruit of clandestine intercourse, he never married, but consorted with politicians, pariahs, Magdalenes, all his life. But his silence upon one famous occasion, he condoned adultery, and in his nebulous paradise, which socialists and anarchists and other priestlings assert will come upon earth, he insinuately states that there is no marriage or giving in marriage. During the first three centuries, Christians was another name for free lovers meeting in catacombs and secret places to enjoy promiscuous sexualism before the end of the world came, an event that expected every day for 300 years. The leprous repulsiveness of medieval so sodalites and modern monastism is all too well known and requires no more than a passing illusion. The cells where corralled onisms dwells are as notorious as they are ultra-natural. 
Not only the layers of male and female celibates, but the vestries of churches and temples have ever been hotbeds of lasciviousness, seduction, and all uncleanliness. The harlot is Christ's sister, and the tramp is Christ's brother, proclaims our dear comrade W.T. Stead, and he ought to know. Has he not the uh, theatrically tried his hand at being a Christ, vida Liza Armstrong in modern Babylon, in order to turn an honest penny? In deference to barbarian prejudices, after the Alaric and Attila immigrations, the early church abandoned its communistic free loverisms. But to provide holy sanctions and to written authority for its change of heart, monkish forgeries of epistle from the saints were manufactured out on an extensive scale and consciously published throughout Europe. They're now deified. Today, with the advent of triumphant democracy, all vile old slave practices are being actively revived. Verily, verily, triumphant democracy, thou art a foul thing. Triumphant desolation. Triumphant amphimixis. Lo, this is the redeeming spirit that was to cleanse the heathen as white as snow. Many modern chapels are little better than assassination houses, and the tambourined uniform Christlings of the slumber corners are boastfully recruited from the vilest of the vile. An enterprising Chicago pastor has even stated a free love seraglio, with himself as the divine thunder thrower, which he calls heaven, and one of its ugliest angels is boldly sworn in open court that she was impregnated by the Holy Ghost, to whom she bore a son in the orthodox style. Altogether primitive Christianity is in its renaissance. Behold, it cometh to pass. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, is being rapidly and joyously maternalized. Selah, Selah! Deity hath established himself as statute law. The state, which is the people, is his throne. And the church, which is his righteousness, is his footstool. Glory, glory, glory! All the ends of the world have seen the salvation of our God. Behold Christliness realizing itself through social institutionalisms. Behold the golden harvests grown from the seed of legislation. Oh, for the barbarian swarms of the Danube and the Rhine. For the blown, uh, blonde pirates from the northern seas. Oh, for men of a spirit with lion hearts and lion brains. For one cohort of true knights who would consolidate their hopes and convictions into naked swords. Alas, alas, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The age of chivalry is dead and gone. So sleeps the proud of former days. So glory's thrill is o'er. That was rough, Ginter. Um, I disagree with the assertion about women needing to be subjugated. Dude. Oh my gosh, did this guy have a girl cheat on him or something? Holy shit. I've never understood that either. It's the same thing with leadership, right? Um, a good leader does not need to threaten its constituents or soldiers or men or women in general, right? A good leader just leads by example, sets a standard, and, uh, you know, boldly creates order through choices. Um, same thing with a good mate, in my experience, right? In a, in a relationship. 
just be a good person and you don't need to subjugate people. You don't have to enslave people. You don't have to chain them in a cave until they turn docile if you just treat them with respect as an individual. That's, that's it. And it's easy. Then they willingly fuck you. <laughs> imagine that. Oh, if these people could only imagine what it would be like for women to enjoy having sex with them. Imagine. I wonder why they don't. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's just fucking crazy, man. I've never understood that. Clearly, you're either doing it wrong, or you're just an asshole. So no wonder why they don't want to be around you. I mean, fuck. <laughs> Never understood that. Just don't be a dick. That's all. Listen. It's pretty awesome. I can't imagine... I just want to rant on this just a minute longer. I can't imagine that rape could even, because that's what he's talking about, you know, literally raping your women until they are no longer trying to fight you off. I can't imagine that that could even get close to the, the erotic joy, I guess I'll phrase it, mutual intercourse right because they're not doing anything for you in that instance they're just like screaming and clawing and kicking and fighting and pushing you off right alternatively they're pulling you in and you know doing all the wonderful things that every weirdo loves them to do which would you want which one would be better <laughs> i've never understood that mentality it doesn't make any sense at all God, you're missing out, you fucking idiots. <laughs> you, you you long dead fucking idiots. <laughs> God damn. Weird, right? <clears throat> Three. In all practical operations, non-principled persons possess a distinctive advantage over principled ones. Honesty never succeeds, for when it succeeds, it is not honesty. There is no fair play in love or war, and all life is made up of love and war. Genuinely honest men die as a rule of like dogs in a ditch, and in business affairs they are nowhere. In their dotage or in God's good time, they nearly always go over the hill to state infirmaries unknown friendly, uh, friendless. What chance has a conscientious man when pitted in statesmanship, literature, or commerce against the organized knavery of sanctimonious and powerful cutthroats? To them he is a pigeon to be plucked, a buck to be hunted, a criminal to be chained, a madman to be made sport of, a lamb to be skinned, a heretic to be burnt alive. Certainly it is not good strategy for a man to openly proclaim his loss of faith in conventional moralisms if he desires to get on in the world. A wiseling keeps his real sentiments on the point to himself, guards them as his own life. The best mask for moral heresy is one of pretended sanctity. It is very effective. Nearly all the higher thieves are ostensibly 
ostentatiously pious. Thus, when you hear pulpiteers and journalists vociferously proclaiming their profound acquiescence in moral principles, it is safe to conclude that they're engineering some subterranean swindle. Belief is a war stratagem, an instrument of deceit, a convenient falsification formula, a beautiful hoodwink. Hence it is that very religious and very holy persons are almost always thoroughgoing scoundrels at heart, utterly unreliable, utterly untrustworthy. Generally, their whole lives are one drawn-out mendacity, and genuineness of thought or action is in their mind attenuated to a mere sham. Politicians, authors, pastors, prophets, historians, philosophers, and editors are notorious falsifiers of nature and fabricators of subterfuge. Soaked in unnaturalism, saturated through and through with delirium, breeding, hasich, literature, they become organically incapable of speaking, let alone of thinking or writing honestly. Artificialism has trained them to be prevaricators, and prevaricators they must remain until the clods from the grave diggers shovel rattle down their own coffin lids. As the old man of the mountain trained his fanatical assassins and sent them forth to slay, so civilization trains its fiendling intellectuals and sends them forth to assassinate human nature. They are the murderers of manliness, the regicides of thought, the annihilators of heroism. Would that I had a legion of demons to wring their necks. They have smothered the grand and masterful old northern realisms beneath pestiferous rubbish heaps of oriental mythology, of Hebrew old clothes. They repeat automatically in sounding diction what has already been stuffed into them, as it were, with a ramrod. Their learning is the learning of the learned pig in a menagerie, and their virtue is the virtue of a conscientious Jesuit. March of mind, they call it, as organs grind the note they're set to. Brains jejune, grind year in, year out, the same old tune. Oh, um, sorry for stumbling so much. Like sometimes words that you stare at don't make sense anymore in my mind. I don't know if it's like just me, but the longer you're staring at just words on a page, the more you have to try to focus. At least I do. Um, and I'm often mispronouncing words, which I realize after I've read them, and I don't, you know, I have to sort of make that judgment call of, well, how far ahead am I that it, you know, took me to realize that I missed, made a mistake back there? And do I back up all the way or do I just keep going? Or So it's this constant sort of, you know, stepping in and out uh, of the act of, of reading that my mind is going through, which then ultimately makes me stumble even more. So I hope you're okay with it. Thanks, man. <clears throat> Let's keep going. The men who conspicuously succeed in life, the generals and nobles, merchant princes, powerful prelates, opulent bankers, wealthy manufacturers, never overload themselves with artificial moral principles. In their secret hearts, they utterly despise all evangelisms, and for written law, they are above and beyond its reach. Kings, conquerors, millionaires 
are perpetually being denounced for not abiding by laws and regulations enacted by majority votes. The man who plays the game of life in strict accord with certain cut-and-dried principles, principles that everyone knows by heart, is not likely to come out a winner. He, who in his younger days incommodes himself with the copy-book moralisms and terror of the law, is like unto a soldier that, before entering the battlefield, ties his right hand behind his back and pledges himself to strike and shoot his adversaries on one prearranged spot of their bodies only. Could such a madman soldier hope to conquer? What chance would he have if pitted against brave, dauntless, well-equipped antagonists who had not foolishly bound themselves by such a stupid obligation? The right of nature, which writers commonly call just natural, is the liberty each man hath to use his own power for the preservation of his own nature, that is to say, of his own life, and consequently of doing anything, which, in his own judgment and reason, he shall conceive to be the aptest means thereto, writes Hobbes in his Leviathan. The man who permits himself to be directed and mastered by the insolent moral principles of the multitude is like an eagle with clipped wings and broken talons. In war, your chief end is to smash and paralyze your enemy combinations. To do this effectually, you must meet wile with wile, steel with steel, and blow with blow. You must be equally prepared to fight in the open or fight under cover, to fight on sea, to fight on land, or to fight in the air. You shall wage your own war. You shall think your own thought. It is pusillanimity. Pusillanimity. I'm saying that fucking wrong. That evolves the slave and breeds the idolater. Quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines. Tacitus, with true Roman stateliness, observes, the gods look with favor upon supreme courage, and Herbert Spencer sagely asserts that a creature not energetic enough to maintain itself must die. Cursed are the white-livered, they'll make excellent fertilizer. Truly, the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. This age of ours wants men above all things. Men of a spirit, men ever ready to look into the eyes of death without winking. Behold, I post up this new proclamation. The man who made justice was a liar. Whatever weapon your enemy possesses must be duplicated or improved upon by you. If it suits him to challenge battle in open front, be sure and ambush him in the flank, or straightway make a hidden detour and charge him in the rear. It is your chief business to delude him, deceive him, decoy him, outgeneral him if you can. If moral scruples and fear of what the world will say prevents you from doing this, then you were born to subordination. And you had better surrender, for you can never hope to vanquish. You must be born again. Over an open grave ever lies the road to success. In the world's broad field of battle, every man is a combatant. And to be a successful combatant, he must not only be calculating, cool-headed and brave, but possessed of merciless strategy, a stout heart, a strong arm, and quiet, indomitable determination. Even the Siamese twins waged a lifelong civil war. Man, as we have proved, is the king of the great carnivores, Homo homini lupus. By heredity and by training, all carnivores are instinctively strategic in their hunt operations. They lie in wait for their prey when they cannot capture it by other methods, but they do not hesitate to hunt in the open if it pleases them to do so. 
Great animals, whether man or brute, never operate in strict accordance with prearranged rules or procedure. If they did do so, they could never prosper and would die of hunger. Their greatness lies in springing surprises, in doing exactly what their antagonists, or intended quarry, don't expect them to do, in being beyond and above all moral measurements whatsoever. Genius is a first-class commander, is always exemplified. Not by his goodness, but by the originality and aggressive boldness of his pitiless tactics. When he is thought to be in full retreat, he whirls around and annihilates his pursuers. When his adversaries are preparing to give him a hot reception, he foldeth his tents like the Arabs and silently wendeth away. When it is whispered he will embattle his defensive legions on the frontiers of the fatherland, he bridges the Rhine and bounds upon Paris with tooth and claw. When to invaders he is expected to abandon Moscow and retire, he burns it to the ground, and while his foemen, embedded in snow and ice, are freezing to death, he shells them with his field batteries. When wiselings predict that he will seize Gaul and establish a colonial dictatorship, he forces the Rubicons, marches on Rome, and throttles the law. When his nation's foemen are embattled in Italian plains, he crosses the Punic foam and carries the war into Africa. When he is reported to be assaulting Babylonian ramparts, he digs a new channel for the river and righteous mene mene tekel aperizin on Belshazzar's walls. When defenders believe he will march up the slope with drums and banners gay, he quietly scales the heights of Abraham in the night and captures Quebec. When Western Democrats, um, when Western diplomats think he's about to pounce on Constantinople, he runs Baldwin engines through the Great Wall and stuffs the title deeds of the moribund Chinese Empire into his overcoat pocket. Ho, oh, mama. All right, that's precisely what I meant by the crab leg theory. Everyone seemingly approaches the tray as equals, but they sure as hell don't return their seats that way. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Such a funny uh, example. Uh, it's the power play for it for them, not the pleasure. Uh, it does, Zachary, actually. This is something that... Um, I mean, this, this mentality serves you well in business, right? Uh, ultimately, don't let them see you coming. That's, that's really what it comes down to. Keep them guessing. If everyone knows what to expect from you, then they become bored with you. You need to continuously innovate in your practices by whatever means, right? It's that old idea of uh, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. Do if you know it's going to work, just do it. And then if you need to ask forgiveness later, they're going to be more forgiving because you succeeded in whatever it is you're trying to do. I mean, rules were made to be broken, right? <laughs> just throwing out old sayings here. Um, 139. All right, we can go a little longer. Um... You know, I never read The Art of War. It probably got to be on my list, right? I think it should be. Um, 
what was that other one I did read? It was like it. I can't think of it right now. Oh, fuck. It's like on the tip of my tongue. No, I don't know the Book of the Five Rings. I don't know what that is. All right, let's get into this still. Five. The man-animal can never be rendered absolutely moral because by nature he is as full as wiles as a fox or a Jew. Should he insane? <laughs> Sorry, that was fucking... <laughs> He's constantly denigrating uh, Jews, but all the while, like, saying seemingly positive things about them too. It's weird. How <laughs> it's weird. <All> right. <clears throat> Five. The man animal can never be rendered absolutely moral because by nature he is as full as wiles as a fox or a Jew. Should he insanely endeavor to abandon his predatory propensities, then he immediately begins to degenerate. A degenerate and ultimately becomes a feeble, diseased, ghost-ridden monstrosity. A horror to be looked at. Therefore, those who conscientiously try to become honest and good are permitting themselves to be sacrificed as burnt offerings on idol altars. If all men were scrupulously honest, then honesty might be all right, although even that is questionable. But if 1% are deliberately dishonest, then it is assuredly all wrong. Under such resultant circumstances, the 90 and 9 actually become victims of the 1. Honest merchants are ruined by dishonest merchants. Honest commanders outmaneuvered by dishonest commanders. Honest workmen displaced by dishonest workmen. Honest judges undermined by dishonest judges. And honest nations reduced to beggary and vassalage by dishonest nations. Honesty is merely a policy under given circumstances. The best policy, nothing more. In all departments of human effort, Honesty is used as a cloak for real designs, just as a wood, a ravine, or a stretch of rising ground serves in campaigning to hide squadrons deploying for flank movements. Why then do parents inoculate the plastic minds of their children with false conceptions of moral conduct when they themselves must know from personal experience that all such conceptions are a positive handicap in the race for wealth and power? What a witless procedure to teach ideals at home, at school, and at college that we know in our hearts are thorough-going lies and then expect nobility of personal conduct to be the resultant? Turn out into the world a young man well-trained in moral principles, and the chances are 99 to 1 against him. Indeed, the majority of men never win success until they are middle-aged, until they have had time to slough off the false idealisms that began the world with. Unnaturalism has never yet bred a race of heroes and never will. All great races are predatory. The hungry to eat a man. Tiger knows that if he first growls out his intentions and then openly bounds up to his intended victim, he will most probably get an explosive bullet neatly lodged in his cerebrum. Consequently, he ambushes himself in the shadow of a rock or behind a log and leaps upon his dinner with varying results. It is the same, exactly the same, among carnivorous bipeds. A few of them are tigers, hungry to eat a man, 
and the rest are tigers' meat, hungry to be eaten. The fact is that civilization's moralisms are wholly ultra-rational, fundamentally unnatural, and utterly inoperative. Christian principles and natural principles mutually antagonize one another. Nature is Antichrist. Darwinism is the mortal foe of Hebraism. Nature's command is, be egotistic, possess the earth and fight it out. Jesus insists, be altruistic, abandon the world and love your enemies. Darwin proclaims, all ye are rival carnivores. Be strong therefore and bold and fear nothing. Christ teaches, all ye are dearly beloved brethren. Be obedient therefore and good and fear ghosts. Jesus urges his devotees to pray for deliverance. Darwin gently intimates his heartfelt belief in the law of battle. He who will not work, neither shall eat, is the apostolic, apostolic pronunciamento. He who will not fight, neither can he eat, is nature's savage logic. It is more blessed to give than to receive is the vacuous battle prattle of the pastor. It is more blessed to capture than to receive is ordinary common sense. He who denies man's right to exploit man impeaches not the conduct of man, but the order of nature. Who then is right? The Anglo-Saxon or the Israelite? The scientist or the oratical, oratorical wonder worker? The Western thinker or the Eastern dreamer? Which is the true faith? Japhet's logic or Shem's fabulism? Uh, why does there have to be a right and wrong? Why can't it be an individual thing? The whole time he's talking about how it's an individual thing. Then suddenly he's got to broaden it out and say, no, 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 there is a right and wrong for all. But I thought it was individual. I did love this line. Um, nature is antichrist. <laughs> uh, there's beauty to that. I dig that a lot. Oh, nice. I'll have to check that out. Oh, cool. All right. Let's do six. I'm almost out of my tea. Six. Common sense provides no precise solution of right or wrong. All moral philosophy is false and vain, for man is unlimited. In the realm of ethics, most modern wiselings are fanatical and unreasonable bigots. They really believe that ethical principles are as a house built on a rock, whereas the house is an unfounded hypothesis, and the rock, non-existent. Good and evil liveth only in men's minds. They are not realities, but shadows, credos, ghosts, and only the maddest of the mad worship their own shade. What is right? What is wrong? These elemental interrogatories have been asked in every age, and every age formulates replies to suit itself. De facto right and wrong are no more than arbitrary algebraic signs representing hypnagogic fantasies. They are mere symbols emblematic of belated fragments of insolent ecclesiastical crudities. In nature, all developments are essentially one and the same phenomenon and infinitely transfused and intermingled. Good and evil are human inventions, born of human foolery, narrowness, and short-sightedness. 
The organic brain is far too small and too contemptible to completely comprehend what nature is driving at. What appears to be wrong to us may be right in nature and vice versa. We can no more establish an infallible system of ethics than we can establish infallible systems of religion, philosophy, or politics. All the universe is in a state of flux, and men are but a swarm of querulous, heat-evolved insectivores living aimlessly on the top of a floating cork that whirls and darts and rolls over and over and over amid the scum and froth and slime of a boiling, bubbling alembic. Within his own sphere, individual man is and ought to be the supreme determinant. Outside of that sphere, he knows absolutely nothing, and philosophy less than nothing. As for the prophets of futurity, from the days of Gautama, Bell, and Ishtar, down to Christ, Muhammad, Peter, Luther, Calvin, and Brigham Young, they've been strident, deceivers all, working on the emotional credulity of women and doltish rabbles. A false teacher may be earnestly and honorably sincere in all his theoria, but that does not necessarily demonstrate intrinsic divinity. Many false prophets have been murdered because of their opinions, besides Jesus of Nazareth, Judea, and Smith of Nauvoo, Illinois. The ex execution of the founder of Mormonism, inspired by political clamor, is an exact parallel to the execution of the founder of Christianity, inspired by priestly clamor. The point is... Neither shooting nor crucifixion are satisfactory proofs of divinity or probity. Right and wrong, like up and down, east and west, are relative terms, without any fixed or finite meaning. What is good for the goose is not always good for the gander. Newfoundland lies east from Chicago, but west from Berlin. All depends upon the point of view. Consequently, what may be right in one age may, in another age, be wholly wrong. In ancient Rome, it was considered the height of impiety, heresy, and treason for freeborn citizens to adore a circumcised Asiatic. But in modern Europe and America, it is considered pious and fashionable and highly commendable to do so. Even what is right to one man under one set of circumstances may be utterly wrong to the same man under a different set of circumstances. Cromwell, as colonel of the Ironsides, thought regal absolutism the essence of all diabolism, but as president of the republic, he defended it in himself as a crowning mercy. When government soldiers shoot down American rebels, that is called a glorious victory. But when government soldiers shot colonel rebels, uh, colonial rebels during the Red Flag Riots, inaugural of the War of Independence, that is conventionally labeled wicked massacre. When a band of rich men plunder the poor, that is business shrewdness practical statesmanship or financial integrity. But if bands of poor men plunder the rich, that is larceny, burglary, highway robbery, and rebellion. When the Anglo-Saxon invader is cooped up and slaughtered in India, that is mutiny and red-handed murder. But when he mows down the sepoys and battalions on, or fastens them to the muzzles of cannons and blows them into ribbons, that is upholding the majesty of law and order. When Cuban guerrillas kill Spaniards, all American papers describe it as war. But when the Spaniards retaliate and kill the Cubans, that is horrible butcheries by General Whaler. 
Spanish cutthroats are glorified in Spain as dashing heroes, and the Cuban patriots described as brigands, outlaws, and brutal Negro murderers. All depends upon the point of view. Victory sanctifies. In the realm of abstract ethics, there is no other fact upon which the plain man can finally make up his mind. As far as sociology is concerned, ethical principles are decided by the shock of contending armies. Right has always been emblazoned on the standards of victory and wrong on the draggled rags of lost causes. When Bremis, commander of the ancient Gauls, attacked the Colossians, a Roman ambassador protested, asking, What offense have the Colossians given you? Brennus laughed at the question and replied, Their offense is their refusal to make to divide the country with me. It is the same offense that the people of Alba, the Fidenians and Ardeans, gave you and lately the Venians, uh, the Falisci and the Veloski. To avenge yourselves, you took up arms and washed your injury in their blood. You subdued the people, pillaged their houses, and laid waste their cities and their countries. And in this, you did no wrong or injustice. You obeyed the most ancient laws, which gave you the strong, the possessions of the weak. The sovereign law of nature that begins with the gods and ends with the animals. Suppress therefore, O Romans, your pity of the Clausians. Compassion is yet unknown to the Gauls. Do not inspire them with that sentiment, lest they should have compassion upon those you oppress. History is full of similar logic. Brutus, for instance, who pinionarded Julius Caesar, his friend and benefactor, has always been held up to public estimation as the noblest Roman of them all, whereas Booth, who slew Abraham Lincoln, is everywhere and at all times spoken of as malevolent assassin. The operation of law itself is also an apt illustration of the paradoxical nature of right and wrong. Citizens who break the written law are hauled before judges, inquisitorially cross-examined, and chained for long years in state dungeons. But the statesmen and legislators who sell their country for gold and break every statute, law, and constitution in the land without the least fear of legal intimidation. Indeed, the approbation of the state is all sufficient nowadays to sanctify any crime, even the most abominable. In this particular, of granting absolution, the state is gradually supplanting and absorbing this church. The protesters of the past demolished the infallible imperialism of clericals over religio-individual thought, and the Protestantism of the future must demolish the insolent dictatorship of politicals over private judgment and the development of personality. All good Christian men regard the judicial murder of Jesus as a crime of the blackest dye, but they chant church paeans of joy over Jael's murder of Sisera and the assassination of Eglon, king of Moab, etc. It is not very long ago since Catholic and Protestant idolaters mutually roasted each other alive for the glory of God and uplifting of his holy name. Each side proclaimed themselves right with rack and thumbscrew and other little instruments of persuasion. Protestants still think it a crime and a scandal to worship the mother of their God, but Catholics consider it right and proper to deify the Hebrew maid, who remained a maid, what a paradox, after borning a son. To eat pork and beans is frightfully wicked for a Jew, but passable for a cultured Bostonian. To drink whiskey is iniquity to a Turk, but exhilarating to a Scotlander. Roast beef is a goodly dish to an English barbarian, but famine-stricken Orthodox Hindus die rather than taste thereof. 
Dueling is honorable in some countries, but dishonorable in others. So also is pugilism, private revenge, tyrannicide, bullfighting, regicide, and warfare. The Quakers, anarchists, and young men's Christian associations are unceasingly railing against war and all its horrors, whereas there are not a few benighted infidels, including the author, who regard war as nature's greatest prof uh, prophylactic. Polygamy is wrong in England and America, but monogamy is righteousness and polyandry right, being licensed by the state. Whereas in Eastern Europe and among all savage tribes, polyandry is iniquity, polygamy, blessed, and monogamy, vileness. In ancient Lacedaemon, stealing was considered highly meritorious if not found out, as in modern America. Salon places left uh, theft among the Salon places theft among the professions, and he knew what he was doing. Aristotle includes robbery among the different kinds of hunting. There was no hypocrisy about these classical authors. They called a spade a spade and searched nature, not libraries, for facts. Herein is the secret of their genius and undying renown. If a man steals a horse or a steer, he is lynched, if captured, as an enemy of society. But if he steals the value of a million horses by wrecking a savings bank, he is straightway made a senator or knighted. It is a criminal act to burglarize another man's house, but it's enlarging our markets to steal Texas from the Mexicans, Alsace and Lorraine from the French, Egypt from the Turks, or Madagascar from the Hovas. The fact is that all the greatest statesmen and kings have been, most commendably, the higher criminals. Wars are marauding expeditions, and all kingship and property originates in warfare. Slay one man in order to rob him, and you are a murderer. Slay a million men in order to rob them, and you are a renowned general. Annex from one person, and you are a felonious ruffian, but annex from the whole population, or from rival nations, and you are made chancellor of the exchequer, chairman of the ways and means, or decorated with the grand cross of the Legion of Honor. Maraud direct for your own profit and you are a heinous rascal, counterfeit, forger, bandit, but maraud indirect on public service only, and you are proclaimed our opulent fellow citizen and distinguished patriot. Take from the peasantry even an infinitesimal proportion of their petty property, and they will lynch you as a lazy thiefish tramp, but take two-thirds of their harvest by law and rule, rent, interest, or tax assessment, and they will turn out in the middle of the night to cheer you in your steam-horsed palace car as it whirls through their godforsaken villages. To steal the goose off the common is awful rascality, but to steal the common from the goose is splendid statesmanship. Men who write down holy fables and books are called apostles of God, or canonized as saints, but men who tell regulation lies in the ordinary course of business are popularly supposed to be wicked and ungodly scamps. The delightful storyteller who prints a pleasing yarn, coined out of his alcoholic imagination, is known as a gifted author, but the plain blunt writer who interprets facts and proclaims them openly is an incarnation of iniquity, madness, blasphemy, a veritable apillion, Satan. What is one man's meat is another man's poison. 
Again, he who prevaricates on a pulpit for the glory of God is everywhere known as a doctor of divinity. But he who bears false witness in an ordinary court of justice is universally condemned as a perjured villain. It is questionable if there is one codified crime that would be considered a crime in every land on earth, just as there are a thousand different icons and ideals of God, so there are a thousand mutually repellent views of right and wrong. Every climate, every nation, every community has its own notion of what virtus means. Moral dogmas are manufactured to suit the occasion and are always used as instruments of intimidation. They are not necessarily in harmony with or based upon nature except in the sense that fraud is natural, biologically and historically considered, there is nothing either right or wrong, but thinking makes it so. Every age and nation must interpret right and wrong for itself, so must every man. It is each man's manifest duty to invent his own ethical credo. If he neglects his duty and supinely, without thinking, adopts the credo of the herd into which he is born, then his individuality is merged and lost. Other men with more personal willpower may then set up fallacious, maladroit dogmas, counterfeit 24-inch gauges, and compel him to conform against his wish. They become rulers and proprietors while he descends into the position of a dependent or vassal. Here is the permanent menace to freedom that lies embedded in all ethical, political, and religious codes. He who keeps the commandments of another is necessarily the servant of that other. He who curbs his own thought to please a majority has already lost his mental liberty. He who implicitly relies upon public opinion becomes a mere marionette, a bloodless dummy. Professing independence, he is practically a prisoner in his own domain. The pride of life is in deciding and doing, in taking the initiative, not in obeying the dictation of others. He who keeps the commandments is and must always remain a subordinate in a beggardom of rules and regulations. He who disobeys the commandments becomes himself a commandment-maker, that is to say, a ruler of the minds and bodies and property of inferior organisms. Obedience is characteristics of the menial. Disobedience is the stamp of the hero. Man is the measure of all things. Protagoras. He who takes no initiative and determines no issues, however intelligent and trustworthy, plays a subordinate part. All great deeds are the result not of majority votes, but individual activity. Every man who is free, and freedom means something more than the mere privilege of dropping regulation pieces of print into a majority box, should judge all things by his own personality. He should regard himself as a measuring rod, the determinant, the unit of value, and carefully abstain from blindly adopting other men's measurements without personal verification and reasonable tests. The easiest way for a band of public robbers to plunder a nation is for them to issue counterfeit currency and exchange it for intrinsic values, and the easiest way to enslave a race is to wheedle it into or impose upon it counterfeit ethics, that is to say, fraudulent standards of morality. When the weighing scales or measures are falsified, all subsequent exchanges become marauding. Then, for closing bankers become cattle lifters, and machine politicians develop into pirates. Thus it happened that the word politician and thief are now interchangeable terms, more especially in America, France, and Australia. Government is the great blackmailer. And that's it, my friends.
that was a great section. Absolutely, 100% in like everything. It was just a fantastic section. I really, really dig it. I am, I am continuously surprised by this book. Either I get really excited over some of the ideas and the, the truth of them, or I'm repelled by the ignorance of the author. And then I'm pulled back around. It's, it's a weird roller coaster of thought. And even some of his absurd thoughts are grounded in historical facts, even though we now see them differently. And he admits in, on his own in this that modern rights and wrongs are not always rights and wrongs to future generations or in any other given circumstance. So even his own thoughts that he's sharing in this, he is admitting are not always going to be accepted by everyone else, nor that they should only always reverting to the that basis of might is right. It's it's very interesting. This book is very, very... For those who just wholly discount it because of the small pieces of um, uh, ignorance throughout it, they're completely missing a lot of really, really great thought. Uh, I think it's unfortunate. But, oh well, I'm not going to. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and enjoying this with me, uh, if you're enjoying it. Again, I apologize for all of my mistakes and bumblings and stuff, but it happens when you're reading for two hours out loud. Um, it's just going to happen. Uh, so I'm going to continue with this. It does look like we probably have two more. We're ending on, I think it's chapter five, section seven. So um, we'll pick up finishing chapter five and six uh, next time. I'm... I'm bouncing between two different projects right now, which is going to dictate when I do this next, right? So I just finished a reading aloud classics novel. Uh, and so I'm going to do an evil live game at the end of that evil live game. I'll do another reading and then I'll pick up another reading aloud classics at the end of that. I'll do another reading. So it may be a couple weeks before I get to this again. Um, just depending on the projects, you know, timing that I got. But I will get back to this and we will finish it together. Uh, for those of you who are listening to this after the fact, it is available as a podcast. For those of you listening to it in the podcast, give me a rating or a review. Just search Reverend Campbell wherever you get podcasts. If you're watching this live in the chat, thank you guys so much for your time and attention. Uh, if you're watching this just on YouTube, subscribe to the channel. For like 45% of the people who watch my videos are not subscribed to my channel. So just click the subscribe. It's not going to hurt you. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to bite back, I promise. And I'd appreciate it. And until next time, hell Satan.